0: Now, whether it was because I took a wedding just the other day there, but I would like to speak about Christ as the bridegroom. You know, I've been speaking about what he said about himself. He was the good shepherd and he had a flock of sheep. And he was the doctor and he had some patients. He was the great physician. You know, he said wonderful things about himself, titles and pictures that we could all get. He was a well of living water and so on. But today I would like just to speak about Mr. Bridegroom, the Bridegroom, and see if I can just bring before you his claims in relation to a future wedding. You see, maybe we should just say at this stage, just in case anybody thinks that this message is only for those who are married or ever will be married, that is not the case. You know, I remember vividly when I was just a a boy of, um, I think, maybe 12, and um, she was 11, and uh, I had parents that loved me, and her mum was dead and her father was a drunkard and I was well and she had cystic fibrosis and um, I was I was someone who had brothers and sisters that looked after me and she had nothing <clears throat> and I remember, you know, the day she died she was in her Sunday school and I knew her very well and it was the first time I really had met death in any shape or form and uh, I was really cut up about it and I remember speaking to my grandfather about it and I remember him saying to me, because at the funeral, you know, there were so few there. They had to get her father out of the pub to attend her own funeral. And the Christians laid her down. It was just enough to carry the cords and lay her coffin in, in the grave. And the whole episode was just too much for me. And I remember being really tearful. And I remember my grandfather saying to me, dry up your tears, he said. He says, I was with her in the hospital, he says, the night before she died. She says, she was beaming from ear to ear. And she was telling me. I'm going to be with Christ. She says she's saved, Craig. She's saved. Here's another thing. She said to me, the only regret I had, I was never married. And I said to her, you've got a, you've got a, you, you are part of a great bride and you've got a husband in glory. Now these things stick in your mind, you know. These things stick in your mind. She had nothing in this life and yet she had everything. She was poor and yet she was very rich. She had no father on earth, ah, eh, but she had a father in heaven. And I want to ask you, do you have what that little girl had? Elizabeth, do you have it? Do you have Christ as your saviour? You know, you might have much in this life, but do you have the big thing? These things were taught to me fairly early doors. So, as I speak on the subject of the bridegroom, I'm not classifying M in the audience. I'm just saying that marriage is a beautiful picture of a future wedding one day, and there's a bridegroom, and there's a bride. <clears throat> When I was doing the wedding, you know, the couple asked me to marry them, and they came to speak to me about their wedding, and of course weddings here in in, in Great Britain are a bit different to how they would have conducted their weddings in the time of the Bible being written, and uh, you know, they would have got engaged, the couple that came to me, and they would have promised each other their hand in marriage, and then they would have then invited me to take the ceremony, and of course there would be a ceremony where um, the, the, the groom would be standing there, then the bride would come down the aisle, as she did, and Then we would say the vows. In the presence of God, we took those vows. They took their vows before God and they were, they were married, uh, taking that official oath before the Lord. And then after that, there was a reception and a meal. And that's the kind of format I would imagine most weddings would take place. But not here. The weddings in the, in the time of the Bible being written had a slightly different structure, not much different. And when it came to, um, when it came to, um, the issue of, say, engagement, it'd be much more likely called betrothal. It was a much deeper thing than engagement. It was legally binding, and vows were taken, and promises were made. And in actual fact, a dowry was paid for the bride around that time. And then it would be a period of some gap, a gap as the bride would develop and grow, and then it would come the day when the ceremony would take place. And after that interval of time, it wasn't the groom waiting on his bride to appear as it was in our wedding. No, the groom would take his friends, and they would go to the bride's house. And they would go to the bride's house to receive their bride. That would be what would be happening in these, in these days. And then there would be a, some period of time again. And then there would be a great supper. A lavish supper that sometimes lasted many days. And that's the imagery that sits within the Bible here. And that's what I'd like to speak about today. You see, because that marriage is speaking about a greater marriage. When I married the two, you know, just the other day there on the banks of Loch Lomond. I have to say it was the hottest day in Scotland ever. Hottest day in my lifetime. And creation just boomed his glory. I couldn't help thinking of the very first marriage in a garden so many years before. In the beginning, God made them male and female. And marriage being a creatorial thing. When God instituted the human race, he instituted marriage as part of it. And the devil's been attacking it ever since. <clears throat> and then it was, too, making their oaths before God. You see, God ever had in mind a bride. Ever in mind a bride. He was always going to have a marriage in heaven. The Bible calls it the marriage of the Lamb. And, you know, I'm privileged to tell you I'm going to take part in that marriage. You say, how do you know that? Well, I'll come to that as I go through the scripture. But I'm going to be part of that great marriage. You know, it's wonderful to know that God had this always in his intentions. It was a great plan right from the beginning of creation. The great intention was it would be a marriage, the marriage of the Lamb. And he's called the bridegroom. He's called the bridegroom. And, of course, you can't think of a bridegroom without thinking of one that loves a bride. And this is what we have here. And there's vows, real vows taken. And there's a real dowry paid. You know, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives, even as also Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify it and cleanse it by the washing of the water, by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. It was ever God's intention, you know, to put down a ransom price. Now I believe that when Christ died, he died for every single boy and girl and man and woman. I believe that with all my heart. The Bible tells me that. It doesn't matter what I believe, it's what the scripture says. It says Christ died as a ransom for all. That's pretty clear, isn't it? But you know, I often like to think too that not only did he die for the whole world, he died for me. That's what Galatians 2.20 says. The son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me and he shed nothing less than his precious blood for my soul. That's amazing. That's why I revel in Calvary. That's why I revel in the cross of Christ. We stood beside the cross, you know, today. Yes, we stood beside where where Bunyan stood as he walked up that hill and came to the cross and said, Bless cross, bless sepulcher. And we stood beside that cross today, just some 50 miles from here, and we sang at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light. And we preached about the cross. You see, my friend, but for the cross, none of us would be anything. But Christ has died for us. And that, makes, that just changes everything. Absolutely everything. But he also died for the church. He died for his bride. And he paid a great dowry. You say, how much did he lay down? I want to tell you, if you can tell me, if you can tell me how much God loves his son, if you can tell me the value of the Christ of God to the Father, if you can tell me the value of his precious blood, I'll tell you how much he could put down. It's an infinitesimal, infinitesimal amount that was laid down for every single soul. Do you know one soul is precious to God? You know the Bible says this, that the redemption of the soul is precious and must be left alone forever. That's the literal translation. That's the much a soul. How much, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? A preciousness of one life. Christ died for every soul. And he died for this whole bride. And he puts down a great ransom. And what about the vows? You know, I've got the vows still in the back of my Bible here. I don't know about you, but when I attend a baptismal service, I always think about my own baptism. Christians get baptised, by the way. We've not really touched on that subject sufficiently in these meetings. Christians do get baptised. And when you go to a baptismal service, you're reminded of your own baptism. And when you go to a wedding, some of us who are married, we're reminded of our own vows. And, you know, as I stood there and listened to these vows... In the presence of God, I call upon all here present to witness that in faith, honesty and love I receive you. From God to be my lawful wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, to share with you in God's plan for our lives together, united in Christ, and with God's help to strengthen and guide me, I'll be a strong spiritual head in our life together, for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, in joy and in sorrow, until either death parts us or the Lord returns God has prepared me for you and so I will love you, lead you, care for you, comfort you, encourage you throughout our life. And to you alone I promise all faithfulness as your husband, therefore as a token of my love and as a seal of my vow to you before our God and these witnesses, I give you this ring. You know, even the hardest of us get affected by that. And yet some of us have taken vows like that and broken them. I want to tell you about a man who's made a vow and you will never break it. He says, I give unto my sheep eternal life, and they shall never, never perish. He's a man, the Bible says, he's the God that cannot lie. He's a gentleman that always keeps his word. He's sinless, he's pure, he's holy, he's harmless, he's undefiled, he's separate from sinners. And I commend him to you. I want to tell you, he makes an absolute vow. And the vow is simply this. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he laid our transgressions from us. Their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth us from all sin. He says, these words, I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. He says, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger. He that believes in me shall never thirst. He says, come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest." He says, he that hears my word and believes in him that sent me shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death unto life. He keeps his word, you know. He's absolutely truthful. He loves his bride and he keeps his vows. He's looking for a response. You know, I could have read out the bride's response, you know. It touches every heart to hear a bride respond to her husband. The two of them looked each other in the eyes and all the congregation could see it. See, that's just two human beings. I want to ask you, have you ever looked into the eyes of Christ and told him that you love him? If you're not, you've never done it, you're not a Christian. Christians love Christ. The psalmist says, I love the Lord because he's heard the voice of my supplications. He's paid a vast dowry for you. It's cost him his blood. It's cost him his life. And he cares for you. And he loves you unconditionally. But he's looking for a response. He'll never take you against your will. There'll be no conscripts in heaven. Everyone's a volunteer. We would love you to and appreciate the fact that he wants your love. He wants your love. You know, in this marriage, there's a gap, you know, of some years. He speaks about when the bridegroom shall be taken from them. He speaks about a gap, you know, as the bride is being prepared. And right now, the Bible tells us that this bride, this church, this enormous array of people, of every single kindred and tongue and people and nation, of every single language group and ethnic variety, drawn from the whole world, boys and girls and men and women, old men and young men, old women and young women, big and small, clever and not so clever, poor and rich, from from every social strata, they're brought together in one big entity that's called the church, which is body, whose names are written in heaven, it's called his bride. And he's making it up just now. She's getting prepared. She's getting ready for the wedding day. And he's coming to get her. You know, the wedding I was at, the bride came to get the bridegroom. The bridegroom was in front of me the whole time. She was getting a bit late. <laughs> Not this wedding. In this wedding, the bridegroom goes to get his bride. You know what? You might have wondered what this means here in this chart. we dealt with this bit here. This bit here off the narrow way that goes away up into the celestial heaven. You know, it's just simply this. Jesus is coming again. He's coming again. Why is that truth been forgotten? Because it's very inconvenient. That's why. Ladies and gentlemen, he's not, he's not working to your calendar or mine. He's coming again. He made a promise. It was David Livingston. I hope you know about him. Very great man. David Livingston said about that promise in John 14, that was the promise of a gentleman, and of a gentleman that always keeps his word he says, if I go, I will come again. And do you know what? The disciples just believed him. They just believed him. There wasn't any theology that would get in the way of just them believing that promise. They believed when he said he was coming again, he would come again. You know, they had a phrase that we might say goodbye or tara or cheerio, whatever you might say, I don't know. But they had a phrase, it was this, Maranatha, he's coming again. That's what they said. When they got saved, you know, they turned to God from idols. You've got to do that. You've got to turn away from all the idolatrous and all the sin. He'll not accept you any other way. They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And then it says in 1 Thessalonians 1, and to wait for his son from heaven. That's what they did. The Christians waited for Christ. He's coming again, they said. You know, in the end of this great New Testament here, John says, he said, Behold, I come quickly. Behold, I come quickly. Surely I come quickly. Even so come Lord Jesus. We believe, you know, in the imminent return of Christ. Amen. We believe it's scriptural. And we believe he's coming back for his bride. And we're glad to tell you, we're part of that bride. We've been made into it. We've, been, we've had our sins forgiven. We're just, we're just rebels like you. We're just sinners like you. But there's a point in our life when we've vowed to him, our love. We've recognised he's our bridegroom. And we've been accepted by him. We heard them say, come unto me. All ye that labour and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest. And you know what? We just took him at his word and we came to him. And we became part of his great plan. Part of his bride. And we now revel in the fact that he's paid a big ransom price for us. And we call it being redeemed. And you know what? We sing about it. We sing about our redemption. We say in the words of Ephesians 1, In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And we can't wait to see him. You know, every bride just can't wait to see their husband's face, or their husband-to-be's face when they woke up the aisle. We just can't wait to see the face of Christ. I almost gave out the hymn, Face to face with Christ my Saviour, face to face with what will it be. One day I'll see those very eyes that love me. And one day I'll see the man that died for me. You know, there's a man I buried just about six months ago, and just as he was dying, the the nurse was wondering if his mind had gone, and she was asking him to do the the, the months of the years: January, February, March, April, May, just to see if his mind was clear. And he wasn't doing it for her. And he said to her, Oh, I'm not doing that, he says. I'm away to see a man I've never seen, but I love very much. And she turned to the family, thinking he'd lost his mind, and the family had to say, No, he's telling the truth. He is away to see a man he's never seen, but he loves very much. I want to tell you it's true. We love a man who's in the glory. He's our saviour and he's our Lord. And he's going to take us. And he's going to come very soon. The Bible says, you know, it'll be in the twinkling of an eye. Mind you, that's even faster than a winking of an eye. Just the reflex of the muscles around the, 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 the iris there. Just like that. In the twinkling of an eye, it'll be all gone. Behold, I come quickly. It says, you know, he's coming himself. Just like the bridegroom would come for his bride in these eastern weddings. So he's coming himself. It says these words in First Thessalonians four. He says he says, This I say unto you by the word of the Lord that we which are alive shall not go before them which are asleep. But the Lord Himself I love that the Lord Himself shall descend. With the with the trump of God, with the voice of the archangel, with, 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 the, with a shout, with the voice of God and the, and the trump of God and the voice of the archangel. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive shall be caught up. That's that rapture word. Shall be caught up all together to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. You know, it's a wonderful thing to look forward to the return of Christ. He's coming again. And by the way, if he comes again, you can just take the tent down. We'll not need it any longer. And see Bobby and Josh's house. Just sell it away because you're not needing it any longer either. <clears throat> you know what? This world's nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing. But we believe that we're going to be transported to a marriage feast. <laughs> a marriage feast. What more than that? Well, actually, it's actually the wedding itself. It's called the marriage of the Lamb. All well, there's various things going to happen. Judgment seat of Christ, the Father's house. But ultimately, we're going to, we're going to the marriage itself. And all that God intended for marriage will soon be brought out on that occasion where a chaste, virgin bride will be united in some mystical way that we'll never understand with Christ and will reign forever with him. He's got such big plans for us, you know. He's paid, us, he's paid for our souls and blood. He's got such big plans for us. To think that I'm going to a wedding in the glory, that's what the scripture says. That's what we read here in Revelation chapter 21 and rather 19 in particular, but chapter 21 and 22, speaking about the lamb, the bride, the bride, the bride of the lamb and the marriage of the lamb. And you say, well, after the wedding's over, what happens next? Aye, there's a period again of a wee gap before there's the supper. It's called the supper, the marriage supper of the lamb, which I believe takes place on earth. And you know what? In that gap, there's a period of at least seven years. A period that will be desperate persecution and desperate torment on earth. The Bible calls it the tribulation, it calls a part of it the time of Jacob's trouble, it calls the last half of it the Great Tribulation. It speaks about a man that's going to rise up and going to solve the Palestinian problem and get Jew and Arab to speak to one another and make a peace pact that lasts three and a half years. Various things are going to happen in this period. But I want to tell you, if he comes for his bride tonight, you'll be left entirely in your seat in a world that's never going, to, it's going to be real with economic, military, and geological catastrophe. And ultimately, there's going to be a supper to celebrate this marriage. And we read a very solemn chapter in Matthew 25, where the friends of the bridegroom, People that were there are sitting, waiting for the return of Christ to earth. I want to make this clear now. When the Lord Jesus came the first time, he came in two stages. First of all, in quietness and obscurity to Bethlehem. And then in publicly, he came into Jerusalem in the colt of a four of an ass. And he said, Hosanna to the the, the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. You know, it was first of all private, then public. When he comes the second time first of all it will be private for his lamb, for his bride and then it will be public. He's coming again and he's going to come and his feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives, and it's going to split in two. He's coming to judge the man of sin he's coming to judge the enemies of Jehovah and all who receive the mark of the beast and you know what? The question is are you ready for these things? Behold the bridegroom cometh in the parable you know 50% were ready and 50% were not it was seen as having oil in their vessels a figure that we find hard to understand today because we've got light bulbs like that there but some of you just might have in your garage somewhere an oil lamp with a little wick and you'll know when you light the wick if you've got no oil in that lamp you're going to have no light and they're waiting for the Lord to come back but half them are ready and half them have nothing It doesn't matter if you've sat in a tent like this, you know. It doesn't matter if you've had Holy Communion. It doesn't matter if you've been christened as a baby. It doesn't matter if you look the part. If there's been no genuine work of conversion in your heart, if the oil of the Holy Spirit is not filling your soul, if you've never taken the vow of saying, I love the Lord, if you've never loved the bridegroom, it'll be too late, you know. We'll be found out. It says the bridegroom came and the door was shut. I'm afraid for people that might be leaving it too late in this meeting. That's why I'm speaking on this subject. I'm telling you the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back again. And he's the bridegroom. And he's building a bride just now. He wants you to be part of it. That's why he died for you. And that's why he loves you. What he wants is a pure vow from you. Of love and affection for him. He wants you to bow on your face before him and admit your sin. Then recognise his glory. And in return, he'll take you to the great celestial city up here. He'll take you to the holy city in the sky. He'll take you to a place called the Father's house. He'll take you to a place that the Bible says there's no night there. He'll take you to the place where he calls the lambs, the bride, the lamb's wife. He'll take you to a marriage feast. He'll clothe you in a righteousness not your own. you will discover your dress is fine linen, white and clean. He'll take you to a supper, ah, like no other supper. A feast like no other feast. You'll gaze upon a man that never got anything wrong, never did anything wrong, was always kind, was always good, was always wise, and you'll perpetually be blessed, eternally. Or, you'll stay in your seat tonight and continue to ignore his overtures of love and miss the greatest wedding of all and miss the bridegroom and be right for judgment and end in hell. My dear friend, I warn you in the fear of God, Be ready for the coming of the Son of Man. Be ready for the coming of the Son of God. Be ready for the bridegroom to come for his bride. Would it not be wonderful tonight if you became one of his children, one of his family? I say, I don't have, I think I've got sufficient. Remember little Elizabeth. She had nothing, but she had Christ. She had the big thing. I'm asking you tonight, do you have the big thing? Do you have the big person? Do you have my blessed Saviour? Do you have the bridegroom? We are praying tonight. This will be so riveted in your minds, so riveted in your heart by the Spirit of God, that you will say at the end of the meeting, before you leave that tent, "He that hath the bride is the bridegroom." You'll come to love Him. You'll come to be part of Him. You'll say, "Jesus, I'll trust Thee, and I'll trust Thee with my soul. And I'm guilty, and I'm lost, and helpless." But thou canst make me whole, and you'll come to be a lover of the man that died for you and rose again. We pray that you'll not leave this meeting in a state of unbelief. We fear for you in the fear of God. Remember, ye you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh.
1: Second Chronicles 14, verse 3. This is speaking about Asa. He took away the altars of the strange gods and the high places, and broke down the images, and cut down the groves. <clears throat> verse four, he commanded Judah to seek the Lord. Verse six, he builded he built fenced cities in Judah. Verse eleven Asa cried unto the Lord. CHAPTER sixteen, verse twelve. And Asa in the thirty and ninth year of his reign was deceased in his feet until His disease was exceeding great, yet in his disease he sought not the Lord, but to the physicians, and Asa slept with his fathers. Come with me to the first book of the New Testament, Matthew's record of the gospel, and the second chapter. Matthew chapter 2, and we'll take our reading from verse 10. Uh, When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Come with me to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us would who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he <coughs> wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places? 1 Timothy Keep going in the Scriptures, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st Timothy, chapter 1, the 14th verse. 1st Timothy, chapter 1, the 14th verse, verse. The grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through, the lust, through lust. A final reading in the last book of the Bible, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, and we'll take our reading from chapter 16. And it tells us in verse 17 the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying it is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings and there, were, there was a great earthquake such as was not since men were upon the earth so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell And great Babylon came in remembrance before God, to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. We've heard words of truth in the Gospel meeting this evening. Beautiful truth, really, for the Christian in the tent, that the Lord Jesus is coming again soon. The hope of every Christian. But I want to remind you as I commence my remarks in the Gospel this evening that it's very solemn truth as you sit in the tent out of Christ and still in your sins. I want to remind you, my friends, of the solemnity of what it is to sit in your sin and face the very day of coming judgment. An awful thing that we've been reading about and if the Lord permits us, I trust with his help to conclude this evening really just where our brother concluded and I trust that these messages would tie together and that you would be saved in this tent this very evening. As you sit on the seat where you are, that you would just understand gospel truth and that you would trust Christ. We read of a man in the scriptures, his name was Asa, he was a king in Judah. I want to just lift a lesson from the life of this man and just apply it to you in the tent tonight. And I think that there may be someone in the tent who could just relate to what I'm saying. This man had lived his life and the last verse that we read together when he had a, a disease that was exceeding great, a disease in his feet. He really was coming to the end of his life now. I want to remind everyone in this tent tonight, my friends, you just don't know when you're coming to the end of life. I don't know how old or young you may be, And maybe if you're young in the tent tonight, you kind of look towards life that's ahead of you and it seems to stretch out long. and You wonder what you're going to do with life once you gain grades from school or university. Maybe the promotion in the job or maybe the house that you're aiming to buy. Maybe as you're moving along, you know, I remember speaking to a man in a caravan park on one occasion. His name was Douglas He was 82 years old, and I spoke to him about his soul and eternal matters. You know, he turned to me and he said this. He said, Clive, I've got 10 years yet. I'll get it sorted, but I've got 10 years yet. Well, that was 13 years ago. I often prayed for that man. I just wonder as I speak to you from the platform whether Douglas is in eternity. And I pray that Douglas got saved. But maybe he did. And continue to do what he had done for his life. I've got time yet. I tell you my friends, the only time you've got and the only breath you've got is the last breath that you've just received from God. He does not promise or guarantee you another one. In this tent you must be saved and you must be saved now. I could pack up my Bible, you've heard the gospel from my brother Craig. But by the grace of God, here I am with an open Bible to preach to you the gospel again that you might hear again as I speak to you. You must be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. This man had moved towards the end of his life now and he had a great disease in his feet and he reviewed his life. He was a man that seemingly had done well. He had been tender hearted. In the early parts of his life. And I wonder whether I'm speaking to someone tonight. And as you as you are in the seat tonight. You understand this. That you have an exceeding great disease. Sin. Which leads to death. You kind of look back over your life. And you think there was once a time when I was soft to the gospel. And I was soft to the things of God. And yet tonight I recognize. I just have an exceeding great disease. I do pray that you're wiser than this man. You know, I was thinking about this man today. He was a man that believed there was only one God. He was a man that believed the one true living God should be worshipped. He was a man that actually taught others that they ought to obey this God. He was a man that built things for God. He was a man that prayed to God. You know, my mind advanced immediately to the New Testament. I thought of another man. His name was Cornelius. And it tells me about Cornelius that he worshipped God. He feared God with all his house and he prayed to God. He gave alms to the people, to the poor people who were around him. But this man, Cornelius, was not saved. Do I speak to someone in the tent tonight? And you look back over your life. Maybe you're 12, 13, 15, 20, 25, 35. I don't know what age you are in the tent tonight. But maybe you just look back over your life and you remember there was a time. I used to sing the hymns. And I believed that there was just one God. God. Maybe there's someone in the tent tonight and you review your life and the years that have passed. And maybe you can remember even testifying to someone. I remember when I was this high at school and there was another boy in our class, in my class at school. And he didn't believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. His parents had taught him something else. My parents had taught me that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And I remember going head to head with this little boy in the playground, in the corner of the playground. He is the Son of God. He's not the Son of God. He is God. He's not God. But I tell you, my friends, I wasn't saved. I knew some facts from this holy book, and thank God I did. And you can be thankful tonight, my friend, that there may have been a time that you can remember that you even stood for God, you even stood for the name of God. But tonight, as you sit on the seat, you know you're not saved, and you know that you're diseased with the disease of sin, and you face you face death. All be wiser than this man. Be wiser than this man, Asa, who though he was diseased with an exceeding great disease that he could do nothing about in his own strength. You know, it's an amazing thing, Asa, his name. It just means doctor or physician. And yet, though his name meant doctor, he could not help himself. In the tent tonight, I'm preaching to you, and I'm looking into your eyes, and you're looking into mine, and it's soul to soul, heart to heart, in this tent tonight. God's speaking to you through His Word, and you know you cannot do a thing about the disease of sin, and death that awaits you, and judgment that follows. And yet somehow, through pride, You've not yet surrendered to Christ. This man, it says he sought. He sought the people rather than the Lord. It says he sought. Though he was diseased in his feet. Until his, his disease was exceeding great. Yet in his disease he sought, sought not the Lord. But to the doctors. To the physicians. I just wonder in the meeting this evening. Just as you sit on the seat. What exactly are you doing that's preventing you from salvation? Can I ask you in this tent tonight, my friend, I'm so thankful for what my brother said. He said, we're just rebels. We sometimes sing a hymn, I'm just a sinner, saved by grace. In this meeting tonight, we're not preaching down at you. We're preaching to you and for you. We want you to join this heavenly throng that you may come with us on the way to glory with the expectation of the trump of God. The shout of the voice of the archangel, the shout of God himself. What it will be when we hear that shout, the shout shall raise the dead, the trumpet shall summon the living. The voice of the archangel shall clear the way and Satan shall not hinder as Christ comes for his own people. What a moment it will be when we lift off planet earth to defy the very law of gravity itself and we meet the Lord in the air and we shall ever be with the Lord. Wherever he is, we will be. Thank God for the prospect that awaits the Christian. But tonight... Are you in the tent tonight and are you like Asa? And though you know that you're diseased with sin and that you face death and the judgment of God, you're still looking to other people and other places. Oh, my friend, tonight, take Christ as you sit on the seat. Take Christ by faith. Just surrender to Him who laid down His life on Calvary's cross 2,000 years ago. I would presume tonight in the tent that I'm speaking to folk and you've heard the message of the gospel before. You know that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. You know there was a rugged tree outside the city walls of Jerusalem that the Son of God came to and impaled hand and foot. Jesus Christ, he bore the brunt of the judgment that we deserve because of our sins. You know that in the tent tonight. You know the truth that he rose again the third day. Maybe I'm speaking to someone tonight and you've even testified that truth to others. But you're not saved. And you need Christ. You know, the wonder is this. That God has extended this dispensation to the very moment where we are. Someone was praying in the prayer meeting and thanking God for his long suffering. I tell you, I thank, I thank God he waited to the 21st century or I would never have been saved. I thank God he waited for 20 centuries to run their course. And he visited a little boy. With salvation. Tonight in the tent, the Spirit of God is striving with your soul, pleading with you to turn to Christ. You know, we read (coughs) of some individuals in the New Testament that are referred to as wise men. In fact, it's the first question that we find upon the page in the New Testament. You know, the first question on the page in the Old Testament comes from the devil. As he tries to sow seed into the minds of men and women. Has God really said? Hath God said? I'm thankful the first question on the page of the New Testament is this. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Wise men that would seek Christ. And it tells me of their exceeding great pleasure. It says they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Tonight, my friend, would there be joy in the tent tonight? Understanding this great truth, I can take Christ as my Savior in this tent. I need not linger in my sin any longer. Oh, we sung a hymn at the close of the meeting last night. Many summers you have wasted. Ripened harvest you have seen. Winter's snow by by spring have melted. Yet you linger in your sin. Have you lingered another day in your sin, my friend? Won't you come believing? Won't you come to Jesus? Look and live. It was the hymn that was sung the night I got saved. I thank God that that night I lingered no longer, but I came to Christ for salvation. I'm a recipient of the grace of God, just what we read in first Timothy. A man who could say of the exceeding grace of our Lord with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. Salvation is not some kind of cold mechanical decision that you are sent at the signing of a card or that you put up your hand or that you come down the front and whisper a little prayer after the preacher. No, my friend, salvation is the real understanding that I'm a sinner in the sight of God, but that Christ died for me. It's understanding that upon the grounds of his resurrection, I can trust a living Savior. And as you sit in the seat tonight, you could say the exceeding grace of our Lord with faith and love in Christ Jesus. I want to tell you, you will go away from this meeting with exceeding great joy. There will be pleasure in the heart of the individual that trusts Christ. It's been the same for millions down the centuries. And there are Christians in this tent tonight and their hearts are just literally bursting. Of the joy. They thank God that they'll never see the judgment of God in tribulation days. Because of trusting Christ we not only read of exceeding great pleasure and the exceeding great grace, but we read in it tonight in Ephesians of exceeding great power. In the book of Ephesians, the letter of Paul the Apostle to the Ephesians in chapter 1, he spoke of the exceeding greatness of this power to us which believe. He says, what is the exceeding greatness of his power? Maybe I've preached and up to this moment in the tent there's someone that still doubts that that maybe you think you're beyond God's salvation. In this tent with the authority of the word of God I tell you my friend, God has a power which is beyond the power of man. He has a power to save the darkest Deepest dyed sin. I don't know whether you've ever been responsible for murder. But the very man that wrote these words—he was a man that hated Christians. He was a savage man. He was a man that went about to put the Christians to death. He was a man that blasphemed the name of God. He tells us in these very verses that uh, we were reading from in 1 Timothy. It says that before he was ignorant, he was a blasphemer, he was injurious. He did these things ignorantly and in unbelief. Tonight, my friend, that man is in glory as we speak to you. He's a sinner that's been saved. The light of God's glory dawned upon him. The light of Christ dawned upon him in his darkness on a road as he went pursuing to kill Christians and put them into prison and to eradicate the name of Christ from planet Earth. But he came to realize it was futile. He came to realize that the power of God and the glories of Christ were beyond the darkness of sin and Satan. I tell you tonight in this tent my friend the reality is this that there is no soul in this tent beyond the power of God in salvation. Do you believe that in the tent? The You know I could go to the strongest man on earth let's just think let's just take maybe the greatest boxer of the 20th century his name was Muhammad Ali. I don't know whether you ever saw news articles concerning that man towards the end of his life. He was a man that said he, in his, in his sport, the profession of boxing, that he could float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. A man of great strength and such feet and such accomplishment in life. At the end of his life he was a quivering wreck. He's now laid in the grave. He is utterly unable to free himself from the position that he's in. His soul is in a destiny that he cannot release himself from. I don't know where that man, I don't know where that man's soul is right now. I don't have the authority to tell you that in the tent tonight. But I tell you this, my friend, the strongest man that ever lived Lies in the weakness of death. And he has no power to release himself from it. But we speak of a God and we speak concerning Christ. Who could say these words. I have power to lay down my life. And the power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. And he could say I and the father are one. The mighty power of God is available in the tent tonight to your soul. If you'll trust Christ, He'll bring you out of the place of the dead and seat you in heavenly places among the living with the great hope of the coming of the Lord. Two more things. We read of exceeding great and precious promises. I want to just touch on this because if you go to that book and if God spares you and I would encourage those of us who are Christians just to read through the second book of Peter, the second letter of Peter, there are promises in every chapter. We read of exceeding, great and precious promises. In chapter 2 it tells us of people who promise liberty but they themselves are slaves of corruption. How can a slave promise you liberty? In the meeting tonight, my friend, I am thankful to testify to you that I cannot save your soul. You know, as my brother was preaching to you about the marriage and about the wedding, my mind was cast back to an occasion of an individual Who, whose wife, a Christian couple, whose wife was called home to glory through the article of death. She was called into the presence of the Lord Jesus and her husband who was alive and remained, he was known to have said something like this. She loved me while she was on earth. As a man on earth, she loved me exclusively as her husband. But you know, she's gone away to a man whom she loved more. I am thankful to testify to you tonight that my wife on earth loves me at the exclusion of all other men on planet earth. But there is one man she loves more than me. It's the man Christ Jesus. And I have no problem with that in the tent tonight. Do you know why? I could not save my wife. He could. I could not do a thing about the destiny of my wife. He could. And as a nine-year-old girl, at the side of her bed on her knees, trusting Christ, he reached in and just lifted her and put her upon his shoulders. And she's on her way home to glory tonight, not because of me, but because of him. Tonight, my friend, I tell you, there are exceeding great and precious promises You can become a partaker of the divine nature that is implanted by Christ himself in this tent. Don't fall for the lie of the devil. Don't accept some lie of a person of earth, maybe a religious person who promises you liberty and they themselves are slaves to corruption. Tonight in this tent, trust Christ. And you'll remember, you'll realize that there is the promise of his coming. You'll read about that in the third chapter of Second Peter. Where is the promise of his coming? Say the scoffers. I'm thankful that God will keep his promise and Christ will come. But I must finish with that verse in the book of the Revelation, my friend, to leave you with a warning in the Gospel tonight. You know, when Christ comes and takes away his waiting people, the church, is going to unfold upon planet Earth in a period of unprecedented judgment. And I was meditating upon this this afternoon. I could not begin with words in the human language to tell you the totality And the reality of what it will be. We have sufficient in our Bible. But I want to tell you. In the language that is used. And the reality of what it will be to be left. it will be a terrible place. Just trying to grapple with these things in my own mind, with my intellect, and yet to be left behind. Exceeding great punishment This house here, it will go. God, my friend, is going to come to planet Earth. And he's going to shake it. And every island will flee away into the sea. And every mountain will come down. You won't have to worry about taking this tent down. It will fall under the mighty shaking of God in that period of judgment. My friend, be wise, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now we're going to pray.